Well, uh, if you got your handout, what we're going to do for the next few weeks is uh, we're going to have an interlude. An interlude is a is a brief pause between two longer things. And basically, our normal uh, progression would be I, we just got done preaching through Ecclesiastes, and then I would move to another uh, study that would go on for a couple months, and so on and so forth. But I think we just need to pause for a minute and reflect a little bit before we move on. I'm not done processing some of the things that uh, the Lord taught us through Ecclesiastes. And so what I'd like us to do is to just spend a couple of weeks. I, I talked to Pastor Matt and I said, I want you to think about some things that Ecclesiastes taught you that weren't directly dealt with in the book. Because that's what Ecclesiastes did for me. It didn't just, uh, I didn't just, you know, swim through the ocean of God's wisdom through the pages of Ecclesiastes, but there were so many other areas that the principles and the wisdom began to touch. And I remember I was uh, just working through about midway through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I was reading in Matthew chapter. Six. I was studying the Sermon on the Mount in my own personal time, and as I was studying it, I was realizing how much Ecclesiastes was influencing the way that I was seeing the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to share a little bit with, with you tonight about that text. And I just remember sitting there at my desk, and I began scribbling out these notes, and one thing led to another, and so here we are. So, let's start by saying that the first way our lives may be different after studying Ecclesiastes in the way is the, maybe the way that we deal with worry. What happened with Ecclesiastes is we got this amazing uh, wisdom and these amazing principles about how to uh, approach things in life and how to deal with things and how to set right expectations and so on and so forth. But one of the residual effects, one of the byproducts of a study like that is when you come to a text that addresses something like worry. Now, when it comes to worry, we need to understand that all of us, all of us, we all have worries and concerns that drive and dominate the lives that we live. We're not all equally worrisome. Some people are far more prone to worry than others. But worry is a universal condition that all of us have to deal with and address in our lives. There's no point where uh, we're ever free from worry. And what happens when we worry is that we fail to make wise decisions. Instead, of, instead we make unwise decisions that are based on fear. Fear is a very destructive uh, emotion. If you allow fear wrongly to influence you, it's going to create all sorts of problems. Now, fear in and of itself isn't always bad. We'll get to that in a moment. But when we worry, a worrisome person is prone to making unwise decisions. So here's my question for you. Be What's the most common thing that you worry about? Now, I know that you are reluctant to write that down unless you're sitting completely isolated from anybody whatsoever. I mean, you know, uh, but you know what that is. You know the thing that you're prone to worry the most about, and uh, it's on the forefront of your mind, but it's hard to write that down. It's almost because when you write that down, it's, you're admitting you're, you're owning the fact that it's something that you worry about. So I understand if you don't want to write it down. But it's in your head. And you know what it is. And you're trying to lie to me, but your eyes are giving you away. So why do we worry? What brings that out of us? I think that we tend to think that our worry is unique. We tend to think that 
if I were to have a conversation with you about your worry or you were to have a conversation with me about my worries, what would happen would be we would try to justify our worries. We would start the conversation by, by laying out the scenarios and the circumstances that cultivate worry and, and the things that are beyond our control and that's what creates this environment in which we worry. And it would just be this litany of trying to justify something that really there's no justification for for a follower of Christ. So, but here's a few things to consider. First of all, we worry about things that we can't control or predict. The primary cause of worry is a loss of control. See, worry, I've said this a million times before, is always a forward-facing emotion. Worry is always forward. It's never behind. We're always worried about in front. Because when you think about it, there's lots of emotions that maybe go in reverse or go in every direction, but not worry. Worry's always forward-facing. So, one of the situations that drives us to become worrisome is when we feel like things are out of control or we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We worry because we recognize that the world in which we live in is dangerous and that bad things really do happen. And that everything is not awesome most of the time. Sometimes, some of you are prone to worry at the reality of the situation in which you are in. In other words, it's not that you're worrying about some future event that you can't control or predict. You're worried about what is currently a scenario. You're worried about that. And you feel justified in that because it's a, a reality. Well, the world is dangerous and it is filled with all sorts of terrible things. And if you think about it, the vast majority of time, things are not awesome. They're not. I don't know what scale you would use to, you know, lay out the, what percentage of your life taken on a whole you would say, Things are awesome, but I would tell you this, it's very small. It's very small. There's always something. There's always something wrong. There's always something troubling. There's always something. And if there's not, there's something looming that seeks to steal your joy and cause you to worry. And so really what worry is, is it's misguided fear. See, fear is a very positive thing. Rightly used. So, if you're walking through the forest and a grizzly bear comes out and you're afraid and you run away, it's good that you're afraid of a grizzly bear. It may be not good that you run away from it, but it's good that you're afraid of it. That it's a gift from God that there are things that make you afraid so that you stay away from them because they will hurt you. We know that the Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we, we see that there are all sorts of things, ways in which God uses fear for good. Worry is misguided fear. Worry is based in fear. It is, a, it is a, an emotion that, that comes right out of fear, but it's fear perverted. It's fear twisted. It's fear wrongly applied and used. Worry is a universal human problem of life in a broken world. When I started thinking about this a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that was really striking to me is I, was, I started thinking about how prevalent worry is in our culture and how we all worry. And then I started thinking about all of the places around the world that I've traveled doing mission work. And I started thinking about how I've been to the most impoverished places in the world. I've been to the, the, the largest slums on earth. And there are very few things that are universally true no matter where you go and no matter what situation you find people in. But one of those things is that they worry. People who live in a mud hut in the middle of the jungle and have no electricity, no 
job, no money. They raise everything that they eat. They trade everything that they need. They, they have, you would think, what could you possibly worry about? You live like Gilligan's Island. I mean, what's, what, what, I mean, you don't even know what the stock market is. You wake up in the morning, it's just another day. You don't care what day of the week it is. And when you're there and you meet them and you talk to them, what you find out is that they're worried. They're worried that it's not going to rain when it needs to. Or they're worried that it's going to rain too much. Or they're worried that there's going to be a brush fire. Or they're worried about wild animals harming them or harming their children. They're worried about snakes and spiders. And I'm thinking, well, man, I might as well go home and worry. In being a slum in India where people live on garbage, they live in houses made of garbage. They wake up every day and live in a, a trash dump. And they're worried. They're worried. They're worried about finding enough to eat. I'm thinking to myself, you've never found enough to eat. But they're still worried. They're still worried about what's going to happen. It's a universal condition. So what about us? You see, those people, see, I'm surprised that they worry. What shocks them is that we worry. They look at me and you and think, what could you possibly worry about? Well, I made a list. We worry about how we're going to provide for ourselves and others. We worry about that. Although we live in the most affluent nation that's ever been in the history of the world, we worry. We worry about things like loneliness. And for someone who worries about that, it's a very real worry. Maybe it's a worry that the loneliness will come. Maybe it's a worry that the loneliness will last. We worry about what people will think of us. Talked about that this morning. We worry. We, we, we run everything through a filter before we do what we're going to do of, of how people are going to respond to us and, and what people are going to think. And We worry about our health. We worry if we're going to die prematurely. We get an ache or a pain or a lump or a bump and we start worrying about what if it's this or what if it's that. We worry about not living up to people's expectations. Or we worry about not living up to our own expectations. Expectations are a powerful thing. And they'll drive. If you have wrong expectations, they will, it will disintegrate the relationships in your life. Or disintegrate your own self-image or both. We worry about our future. We worry about what's... What's the condition of the world going to be like when our grandchildren grow up? We worry about whether or not nuclear war is going to break out and there's going to be a world for them to grow up in. We worry about all these things. Though we have no control over any of them. Though we have absolutely no ability to change, we worry about it. And we say, well, those are important things. Those are real things. Those are meaningful, mattersome things. And so, we try to justify that worry. We say that we hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Usually when someone says that, hope for the best and prepare for the worst, here comes this big justification for worry. But what really in reality too often is is that we act with little hope and nearly everything we do is driven by fear and worry. So, let's, let's deal with it. 
Let's do something about it. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. And the first thing we're going to look at is what not to do. So whenever the Bible talks about change, whenever the Bible talks about transformation, one of the things that's always true about the Scripture's approach to change is that you never, you never just take something off. You always take something off and put something on. Whenever you, are, whenever you desire to change, you want to rid yourself of something, but you want to put something in its place. Because if you take something out of your life and you leave a void there, then undoubtedly that void will end up being filled with either the same negative thing or a new negative thing. So you take off, you put on. You take off, you put on. So the first thing we do is what not to do. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6. You have the verses there in your handout. Let's read together verse 25. Therefore, Jesus says, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is it not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor, nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall I eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Let's just think about what Jesus said and the way in which he said it. So, for example, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say if you get worried or when you get worried. You see, we wouldn't expect Jesus to say if you get worried because we know we get worried. What we would expect Him to say is when you get worried. Like when the Bible talks about trial or tribulation, it's when it comes. It will always you know, say it's not if, it's when. But Jesus doesn't do that here. He doesn't say if and He doesn't say when. Jesus tells us here not to be worried because he knows that we already are. Clearly, the assumption in this passage is that Jesus is speaking to worried people, which I find fascinating. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, well, you don't really drift in and out of worry. You're always somewhere on the spectrum. It's always there. To some degree. Jesus is saying this is the state that we're already in. We're already worrying. So all the things he gives us to apply out of this text. I guess what I'm telling you tonight is that we're not having a conversation for you to start working on something next week. Tonight's about just owning the reality of where we are and Saying, okay, let's deal with this. Let's apply wisdom to this. Let's, let's take some of the things that we learned in Ecclesiastes and let's bring them to bear through this passage on our worry. Because God knows the things that cause your chest to tighten up. That cause your, your, your nerves to, to, to begin to, to tingle. The things that tense you up. The things that, that your, your Achilles heel or weakness, if you will. God knows those things. He knows those things that you, you struggle with. He knows the areas of your life where you find it hardest to trust Him. He knows that. The other thing I was thinking about is this whole thing passage is really an evidence of of God's grace is it not that when you read it what strikes me about it is the repetition 
that, that He's such a good Father to you and me. He's so concerned and so invested in your worry that He repeats over and over and over what not to worry about. Because He's wanting us to get this. And I just think it's such a picture of His goodness to us. That He doesn't just walk by and say, hey, by the way, don't worry. He doesn't do that. He brings it up over and over and over. He brings it up on the left side and the right side, in front of you, behind you. I mean, it's all over the New Testament are these, these commands and these, these admonishments about worrying and anxiousness. And they're in all sorts of different contexts. And it's like God just giving you a big hug and just saying, I love you and I really, really want you to get what I'm saying. So, there's bad news. But at least if there's bad news, typically there's good news. So, I don't know about you, but if you come up to me and say there's bad news and there's good news, I want the bad news first. I save the good news for last. You're probably, you know, one of those impatient people who you got to get the good news first. Uh, but I don't want to linger and walk away on the bad news. I always say I want the bad news first, then give me the good news. So here's the bad news. Jesus does not treat worry as a personal personality trait, but as sin. So you might as well drop all that, well, you know, I'm, I guess I'm kind of a worrier, but that's the way I've always been. My mom was a big worrier. My dad was a big worrier. I grew up in a big worry factory house, blah, blah, blah. Sorry to rain on your parade, Dr. Phil, but it's a sin. It's a sin. Now, how do I know it's a sin? I mean, I know it's a sin because the Bible says it's a sin, but even in this text. Did you notice at the end of the passage, when he gets done talking about worry, he says, these are the things. Why do you worry about these things? He goes, these are the things the Gentiles see. He's saying, you're acting like an unbeliever. What are we... Why is Jesus... So concerned about worry. Why is it such a big deal? What are we doing when we worry? Because I can tell you, it's, it seems to me, I mean, here's what I know. I know a lot of you worry about dumb stuff all the time. I don't do that. I only worry about super important things that are really, that matter in the world. You see, that's the whole thing is that whatever you're worried about is because it's important to you. And whatever I'm worried about is important to me. And one of the reasons why we don't like to have conversations with each other about worry is because it usually isn't going to go good because you're not passionate about what I'm worried about. So you're not going to see my perspective. But if we find someone if we are able to build a relationship with a co-worrier about the same things that we worry about, then we can come together, oh, ladies, and just blossom in worry together. Yes. See, it's kind of rare for men because we don't talk to each other about anything that matters, so it's hard for us to ever know what we're... We know what we're worried about, but we don't talk about it. But when you make a friend who worries about what you worry about, oh boy. So when we're worrying, what we're doing is we're seeing problems in the world and in our lives as bigger than the God who made the world and gave us our life. Worry is in its most simplistic form Blowing something completely out of proportion. Which in general is not that big of a problem 
unless you happen to be a follower of Christ. Then it's a problem. So that's the bad news. The good news is that because worry is a sin, God promises He will forgive us and help us to change. You see, when we find out that something is a sin, or when something is a sin, oftentimes that, that should heighten our, you know, we should become extra keen about that because God has put that in the sin category. And so it makes it very problematic. But there's also some good things that come along with something being in the sin category. And a couple of those are, is that if it's a sin, then God will forgive us and He'll work with us to change. So we still need to be very keen about it, obviously, and we still need to avoid it with all costs. But we know that there's a solution for it. So at its core, worry is disbelief in God's sovereignty and goodness. So really, the two things about God that prop up, they're, they're basically the two underpinnings of my entire theological belief system. And worry attacks both of them. Both of them. Scripture says in Lamentations 3, through the Lord's mercies we're not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You think about all of these passages through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, that, that drive us to this understanding of the character and nature of God so that we would know the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God so that we would not fall into the trap of worry that we're reading our Bibles and we read you know, in Joshua chapter 1 that God will not leave us or forsake us. Or we read in Jeremiah chapter 29 that He has a, 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 a plan and a purpose for us and it's for a future and for a hope. We realize that when God says in Isaiah 41, fear not for I am with you, that those are there to comfort us and to give us security and to give us confidence in, in who we are so that when we face things, because we know they're going to be difficult, we wouldn't fall into worry. So when you look at what the you look at all the things that the Bible has to say about the character and nature of God and then you begin to balance them out against this tendency that we have to worry here's what you find is that God is not downplaying the reality of the constant struggles that we face the scripture's goal is not to tell you listen the things you're worried about are not that important that is not the scripture's goal it's not downplaying your problems. It's upplaying the reality of the infinite superiority of being His child. You see, what the Bible does is the Bible says, bring, Jesus says, bring all your worries to me. All you who are heavy laden, all you who are weary and burdened down, bring them all to me. And He doesn't say, listen, all those things that you're worried about, are just foolishness. He doesn't say, well, you ought to not be worried about your kid's future. You ought to not be worried about how you're going to provide for your family. You ought to not be worried about everyone dying of cancer around you. You ought to not be... He doesn't say that. He says all those things are terrible and all those things are, are, are fretful and all those things are... And he, under, he says, and there's a reason why all the people around you are worried about those. But you belong to me. And because you belong to me, you ought to not be worried about any of those things. Because this is who I am. Knowing me and belonging to me is infinitely superior to all the things that you're afraid of and worry about. That's what the Bible's telling us. See, I think that when, 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 when I look at 
what Jesus says about worry in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. I ask myself this question. Well, why is Jesus talking about food and clothing? In other words, why is He only dealing with these essential things? Well, the obvious reason for that is because throughout all of human history, these are the things that, that would be the most preeminent things that people would worry about because they would be the greatest needs. But I get that. But on top of that, what Jesus is communicating here is He's saying that life in me is intended to be far more than survival. He's saying that when you belong to me, you don't wake up every day and try to just survive the day. The goal is not to just live. The goal is to live abundantly. Right? That's the goal. Look, James chapter 4. Come now, all you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is but a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. In other words, here's a, here's a place in Scripture where the Lord is pulling us back and reminding us, and wait a minute, you know, you need to know your, your role in all this. You need, to, you need to understand that I'm sovereign. That I'm in control. And that you don't just make decisions about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and where you're going to go. Before you make those decisions, you see, that's the decision a person makes who's in survival mode. A person who's in flourish mode is a person who understands the sovereignty of God and then, and then tries to filter everything in their life through that. And ask the Lord first, God, what is it that you'd have me to do? Here's the principle. The principle is, is that we should be humble in our looking toward the future because we don't control it. But at the same time, we should be hopeful in looking towards our future because we know who does. You see, we should be humble and hopeful. We should understand that we don't make the decisions about where we're going to go and what we're going to do. But we also understand that, you see, in James 4, if the Lord wills, translation, whatever God wills for me is best for me. Is best for me. I can trust Him. I don't need to worry about what God wills for me because His will is always good and right because I belong to Him. He's my Father. He's not a stranger. He's not a, a ruler from a distance. He owns me. He bought me, the Scripture says. He paid with His only Son's blood to redeem me. So then how much more can we trust Him? So when we walk into something that we know, it's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. This is going to be a difficult season. This is going to be... We, we don't know how long it's going to last or what it's going to be. We should be humble. And at the same time, we should always be hopeful because His hand, His grip is never loosened upon the details of our lives. But instead, we succumb to living in the future before we get to it. We live out the future. We're not even there. And so I would say that, I mean, if, if I were 
if I were uh, writing a spiritual prescription for worry, then I would write a giant prescription with multiple refills for the sovereignty of God. I believe the sovereignty of God is the antidote to our anxiety. The antidote to our anxiety. So that's what we ought not do. So, what to do? What to do? And in typical Jesus fashion, again, the grace of God being bestowed upon our lives. He gives us a long text about what not to do and then a short text about what we ought to do. Why does He do that? Because He knows how not-headed we are. And He loves us anyway. And so He says over and over and over what we ought not do. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, there's not anybody in this room that that passage is new to. But when you study it in context, you start thinking about it. You start thinking about what Jesus said not to do. You start thinking about this issue of worry. You start thinking about the things you worry about. You start examining, really looking deeply into your own heart and, and peering in and saying, you know, why is it that these things concern me and why do I fret about certain things? And what happens is you begin to get some clarity. You see, there is a right answer back on the front page that says, the thing I most commonly worry about is blank. Now, I got the right answer. That's because I wrote it. I didn't tell it to you. But there's a right answer. There's clearly something that ought to be written straight on that line. The worst thing that can happen to a saved person is to live a wasted life. Now that that's something to worry about. That's not worrying about something in the future that hasn't happened. That's addressing something in the future that is going to happen. You do understand tonight that if you waste your life, it's not going to go well. It's not a matter of, you know, are you going to squeak through? You know, is God going to grade on the curve? It's not going to go well. It is not going to go well. So, the fear of a grizzly bear and the fear of wasting your life are good fears. Really good fears. Look at Matthew chapter 25. The parable of the talents. So Jesus tells the parable about the master who comes, calls his servants, gives one servant five talents, gives another servant two talents, gives one servant one talent. Then he goes off on a long journey. Then he comes back to collect, to, to see what they've done. And here's what Jesus says, verse 24. Then he, he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But the Lord said, answered him and said, 
you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if we think about this parable, which is really an amazing parable, but I just want to draw some things out of it that relate to our conversation and the things we see in Matthew chapter 6. The first obvious illustration from the parable, though I didn't read the whole parable, I just read the end of the parable. The first illustration is, is that everything that I have is not mine. Everything that you have is not yours. The master is the giver of what the servants have. And so the first problem is that if we mistakenly look at what we have as ours, you, ma'am, sir, have taken the first step in the wrong direction. And so whatever step you take after that, you will not be on the path you're supposed to be on because you have left the road. The train is off the track. It does not belong to you. You're a steward of what you have. The second reality that comes from the parable of the talents is that the master is very generous with what he has. You notice that? The master's under no obligation to give talents, but yet he does. And look at how willing he is to reward those who do right with what he gives them. So what you have is not yours, but who you serve is very generous with what he has. And then lastly, and most fearfully, there will be a day of reckoning. Don't think that there is just going to slip by. Don't think that no one's going to call to account what you did with what you were given. It's not just going to slide by. But look at what happens. Not to the wicked servant. But look at what happens to the faithful servant. To whom much is... To, to who is faithful, to him much is given. You see? In other words, the master... who's so generous with what he has, is telling me and you, listen, what you ought to do is not be worrying about tomorrow. Don't be worrying about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or where you're going to live. What you want something to consider. You want something to look forward. You better think about something that matters. Think about what are you doing with what you have. Now there's something to ponder. God's will. You see, all of these things are connected. Matthew chapter 6, James chapter 4 parable of talents, they all connect together. And so does everything else the Scripture says about these issues. When you stop and think about God's will, and you think about how oftentimes people in our culture think about God's will, we, according to James chapter 4, is speaking to our culture and saying it's interesting that, that you're not concerned about God's will until when? There's trouble. 
You see, when something blows up, when something falls apart, when there's a catastrophe or, you know, some terrible thing happens, then suddenly in this or or there's some big moment. Then suddenly the conversation that we hear when people are talking to you or walking by, oh, please pray for me. I'm trying to find God's will in this thing. Well, that's great, I guess. But why are you trying to find God's will today? What about yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and the day before that? Who's out there looking for God's will when everything's going fine? Why is God's will this break glass in case of emergency? That's a very peculiar way to think about God's will. The Bible describes God's will as a way of life. It's not an emergency support system. God's will for you is not what you need in times of trouble. God's will for you is what you need every time you take a breath. Did you hear what I just said? Every time you breathe. What we need is this understanding of the will of God, this dependency on God. You see, that we would say, God, oh, what's your will? Do you want me to go left? Do you want me to go right? Do you want me to do this or do you want me to do that? Well, God's will for you is your sanctification. So whatever is happening, whatever is flowing through your life as a child of God, God's will for you is to sanctify you. It's for you to continually be saying to Him, Father, my feet are dirty. Wash me. Cleanse me. What happens? Seems silly, but I think we should ask the question. Might as well deal with what's out there. What if God wants me to do something I don't want to do? It's a dumb question, but it's a real question, so we should ask the question. What do we do? The question, when we say, God, if I surrender to Your will, where are You going to take me? Where are You going to lead me? What's this going to look like? Oh, man. The whole question, which I'm not going to stand up here and act like I haven't asked it. Because I have. But even when I'm asking it, I'm thinking how stupid it is to even think it. The whole question is rooted in a lack of understanding in the character and nature of God. The whole question. The whole idea of God. What if you take me somewhere I don't want to go? What if you call me to do something I don't want to do? There's so many problems with that. Just on the surface, problem number one is the assumption that you or I know what good is. Think of how ridiculous just that one concept is. Think of how absolutely insane it is for you or for me to determine what's good. I mean, horrible idea number one. Deciding what's good. Disaster. What's good is what God says is good. And what's bad is what God says is bad. He's the only determiner of good and bad. So if God, who's the determiner of good and bad, who loves you and died for you and redeemed you and bought you, who owns you and possesses you, if His will for you is sanctification, if you're going through something you don't want to go through, if He's calling you to do something you don't want to do, the problem's not with His will, the problem's with your understanding of what good is. Now the only reason I know this is because it's beat me over the head like a club so many times. It sounds good when I'm up here talking about it. But it doesn't sound so good when I'm in my study. It doesn't sound so good when I think back on my sanctification. 
and I think about how every step of the way, God was pressing me into something I didn't want to do. He was pushing and He was slowly, slowly letting me discover what it is He was up to, but in His own time, never in my time. You imagine if you if you got a big burst of enlightenment as to what God's up to in your life, how scary that would be. If I was in a if I was in a ten story building and let's say sleeping in a hotel room. And suddenly in the middle of the night, as a brand new believer, an angel appears. Tony, do not be afraid. Okay, we'll work on that in a minute. You're going to become a pastor. I'm jumping out the window. I'm just telling you right now, I'm jumping out the window. Not because there's an angel talking to me, but because the angel's saying I'm going to be a pastor, I'm out the window. I mean, I can't handle that. Even when it comes to the point in time where he begins to say, this is my will for you, I'm still not handling it. And... You see, as we look through the characters in Scripture, we see how God, in His own time, brings revelation about what He's doing. But when you know the character and nature of the God that you serve, when everything that you understand God is is built on a foundation of the sovereignty and goodness of God, then you are strategically positioned to be able to Allow the perfect will of God to channel right through your life. Because it obliterates all of our sort of man-centered ideas. But when you become afraid, wisdom jumps out the window. And poor decision-making is going to become the norm, the process by which you... Let me illustrate to you. Go back in your mind to the parable of the talents. And think about the wicked servant. The wicked servant says, the master shows up and calls account, and the wicked servant says, I perceived you to be a hard man. You you, uh, reap where you have not sown, and you gather where you haven't spread seed. and, And so, I buried... What was yours? And now, here it is back again. Have you ever thought about that? So, let me get this straight, sir. So, you're afraid that the Master is a hard man. So, the solution in your mind to the Master being a hard man is to bury it in the ground. In other words, your extreme contradicts itself. If you actually believed that he was a hard man, if you actually understood him to be a person who would reap where he hadn't sown and gathered where he hadn't spread seed, then wouldn't you have been more prone to invest it and to do something with it? Am I the only one here that understands this principle? When you were growing up, if you knew your daddy was going to tear your rear end up, Did that not impact your decision-making process? Now, you didn't always do the right thing, but at least you thought about it. But if you knew you were going to get away with it. So on one hand, he says, well, I was afraid because you're a hard man. And notice, wisdom just jumped out of a 10-story building. So I dug a hole and I buried it. You're the dumbest person who ever lived. Why would you do that? He was blinded. Blinded to these crazy contradictions of his own life. He didn't see that. 
So I think to myself, how many people are sitting in church and reading their Bible and naming the name of Christ? And who would say, well, yes, there's going to be a day of reckoning, but and in the same way would say, well, God is a holy and a righteous and a just God. And just bury what you've been given in the ground. In other words, the wicked servant, his goal in life was to preserve what he had been given. We live in a country right now filled with people who claim the name of Christ and their lives are devoted to preserving what they've been given. And as a shepherd, I worry about a day of reckoning in the life of the sheep. Your job, ma'am, sir, is not to take what you've been given and preserve it. Your job is to take what you've been given because it never belonged to you. It belongs to your master and to invest it for his kingdom. And what feels risky to you is ridiculous. It is not risky. It's not yours. Be careful that you're not living a contradiction. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. This is a, a perfect place to see this playing out. Hebrews 12 verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. And we paid them respect. Shall we not more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Hmm. So, our imaginations are deficient and unable to picture what God's best is for us. We, we can't. You can't conjure that up in your I mean, you, His ways are, are never going to be your ways. His thoughts are never going to be your thoughts. And listen, it's not just that they're not ours. They're as far above ours as the heaven is the earth. You might as well forget about it. And so we receive chastening and we realize that it's God dealing with us as sons, that He's loving us. Now look at the very next part of the passage. For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seems best to them, but He for our profit. You see that? That we may be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what I'm saying is, is that the idea that you would try to preserve what you've been given is a contradiction. It is an utter, erroneous, and unintelligible perversion of the Scripture. It makes no sense in light of the Bible. None. So here's the way I would put it. This could be our motto leaving here tonight. What often seems like a path to loss becomes a path to great gain. So you've got, to go, you've got to go into this with some understanding that you can't see with eyes like the people that you live around, the people that you work with. You can't look with, with carnal eyes into the face of the things that you're, you're going through and try to discern what that is never going to work. Never. Never. The greatest spiritual blessings in my life 
absolutely bar none, beyond a shadow of a doubt, have been the things that in its infancy were the most terrifying things that I've ever faced. The hardest things, the steepest mountains, the highest climbs, the craziest things that when I embarked on them, I thought, you've got to be kidding me, resulted in the greatest work that God's ever done in me. Listen, if the parable of of the talents is freaking you out, then maybe this will put you at ease. It's as if what God wants to do to bring about produce the peaceable fruit of His righteousness in our lives. Is in whatever context you're in, He calls you to take your Son whom you worry about. Who you've prayed for. Who you love and nurture with everything you have. And a bundle of wood and lead Him up a mountain. And build an altar. And put him on the pile of wood. And in the midst of all of his, his, his uh, unanswered questions, and all of your unanswered questions, and all the uncertainties of the moment, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. So oftentimes, when... You're reading the Scripture. And your Father is speaking to you and He's dealing with you and He's drawing you and He's calling you. And you're going, what? You you want me to do what? Believers ought to be people That embrace pain. Followers ought to be people who embrace hardship. Somebody asked me earlier this year, they said, What is it about your church? What is it about your church that that makes it so special. Like if you had to nail it down to one thing, and this is what I said. I said, I don't know, I don't understand it, but I serve a people that so willingly embrace hardship that at times it's scary. Because even if I'm freaked out, I have a sense that you'll do it. That's what, that's what following God is. It's embracing it. It's not, it's not running from it. Our, our goal is not to... When we make decisions, pain avoidance strategies lead to greater pain. I'm just going to say, let that sit on you however it wants to. Probably the greatest mistake you've ever made, the most painful situation you ever got yourself into, if you're a follower of Christ, is because you were trying to avoid pain. It's a disaster. So, Christian, God's will for you and for me is to not worry about our needs in this world, but to be sanctified and become more like Jesus by seeking His kingdom first. That's what I take out of 
15 weeks of Ecclesiastes. I say, God, there's too much worry. And one last thing. The little game that I play in my life with worry is that I never admit that I'm worried. What I do is I say that I'm stressed. And so, since I'm always stressed, I just kind of slide worry into the stress compartment and go, and you say, well, why are you stressed? And I say, well, that's simple. I'm stressed because, well, there's a lot of reasons I'm stressed. Mainly 600 reasons why I'm stressed. But I'm stressed because there's always more that beckons for me to do than I'm able to do, and it stresses me out. So I said Wednesday night, I said, I don't think that there's a moment in time that anybody could ever go up to Lisa and say, is Tony stressed? And she would say, no. Sometimes I'm worried. And worry is a sin. And I'm, I scoot worry over into stress. And I, and I justify my worry with calling it stress. But it's still just worry. And so as I'm reading through Ecclesiastes and God's just begin to just working in my heart. And, and then I'm Spending time in the Sermon on the Mount, I start to see with fresh eyes God's grace and His love for me through what Jesus is saying about worry. And He's saying, Tony, do you realize how silly that is to worry? Yes, intellectually I, I realize that. But, but, So my, my, my personal mission is to just slay worry every day in my life. Just slay it with the sovereignty and goodness of God. And to say, Lord, I know you're sovereign. I know you're good. And your will is my sanctification. That's His will for you and for me. Let's pray.